direct we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that every prayer and work of ours may begin, continue, and end by thee, and in thee, and for thee, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we did, um, we're really just doing the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, let's be, let's be honest, and that not very well, really. Um, but you will need your Bibles if you want to get on with this, uh, whether on your telephones or uh, some other technology, and keep learning about technology while I'm here, uh, or indeed on paper. I mean, I don't really see what the objection to paper is. Um, so we did, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, five, uh, five, one, two, two, sixteen, really, um, uh, yesterday. Uh, there, there is one point about salt. You remember I said that it was a nutrient and uh, it provided taste and was a preservative. Uh, but uh, in the um, parallel passage in St. Mark's Gospel, it is also related to sacrifice. So uh, we, salt was necessary for certain kinds of sacrifice in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, it means you are to be a sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And you are to offer yourselves up uh, as salt is offered with sacrifice. If you want the reference, it's in uh, St. Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 9, I think. The other point uh, about light, uh, you remember we were talking about light, is that uh, we said that light attracted uh, by its very presence, that it was visible, that was the whole point of it, and made things visible. But the implication for the church here is uh, to shift from a pastoral mode of working invisibly like salt to a missionary mode where the church and believers are attracting people by the light of the gospel. So it's a different, it's a paradigm shift, which I think most churches in the West have not yet made. They still generally work in a kind of part of the pastoral frame of reference. Um, so that's um, something to think about. Uh, from 17 to 20, if you look at that, this is about the law and the prophets. Actually, the text says the law or the prophets. Um, and uh, Jesus is saying that he has not come to abolish the Mosaic law, but to fulfill it. And the question is how he does this. So the first thing about uh, the law and Jesus is that he fulfills the law, all the demands of the law, in his own person. He is the only person to have kept the law perfectly, for instance. He is the only one who has fulfilled perfectly the sacrificial requirements of the law. You see, the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, of animals or cereals or whatever it was, remained imperfect, unable to do what they were set up to do. This is why in Psalm 40, uh, that great psalm about the Messiah, says, You have given me a body. Lo, I come to fulfill your law. 
And that's quoted, of course, in the letter to the Hebrews. So when Jesus says he has not come to abolish but to fulfill, the first thing is in his own person, by his own work, <coughs> in his own teaching. In all of those ways, uh, the law is uh, fulfilled. But then secondly, it is also of enduring significance for us as the church and as believers. So abandoning the law has always meant sinking into antinomianism. Uh, you know that even today we have these advocates of super grace, that all you need is grace. Well, of course, in a sense that is true. Uh, but grace then leads us to law. And there are three reasons why the law remains important for us, uh, relevant for us today. The first is the law is needed to lead us to Christ. The law cannot save us of itself, but the law shows us our radical need for the work of Jesus Christ so that we may be saved. Secondly, uh, the law reminds us of that common grace by which the structures of society, by which creation itself is retained and maintained and nurtured. So what is our basis for engaging with society as we are doing here? It is that we know God's purposes for society as set out in his law are not just beneficial uh, for us as believers or for the church, but they are given because this is how the world is. You see. This is how we are. Um, this is not something arbitrary or unreasonable, but it has to do with how the world is and how we are. That is the proper meaning, by the way, of natural law. I mean, natural law can be misapplied in a whole number of ways, and what is appropriate for animals or for plants may not be appropriate for human beings and their relationships. So each case has to be taken on its own merits. That is the second use of the law, and as Calvin said, uh, there is a very important third use of the law, which is that by grace through faith we are able to keep the law. We are not excused from the moral law of the Bible, of the Older Testament. Uh, the civic law of those days, well that was for that time, that place, or those places and those times. And the ceremonial law, of course, has been superseded by the sacrifice of Christ himself. But we are not excused the moral law. Um, and these three um, reasons for the law remain and are fulfilled in the community of Jesus in the body of Christ by his work in us and in the church. There should be no mistaking about that. But then Jesus comes, and indeed the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, if you were really wondering, is about this. He comes to how the law is fulfilled in the believer and in the church, and to guard against legalism 
on the one hand and antinomianism on the other. How is that law fulfilled? And uh, it is, first of all, by knowing the inner meaning of the law, not just its external application, but what the intention of the law is. <clears throat> it is an internalization of the law rather than just external observance. I mean, in my work with uh, people uh, from a Muslim background and Muslims themselves, this always comes to the fore. You know, what is important? Is it mere external observance? Or is it something to do with the heart and with conscience and with the inner life? And Jesus is always, always emphasizing the internal over the merely external. And so here in the teaching uh, that he gives us, there are six opposites here, I think, uh, in our passage today uh, from 21 onwards. So, clearly, uh, one of the commandments is, you shall do no murder, you shall not kill. But Jesus says this is not enough, because killing people arises from hatred for them. It arises from um, inappropriate anger. There is appropriate anger, by the way, uh, that believers can have. We are taught that quite clearly. Uh, be angry, but do not sin. But there is that hatred which uh, looks uh, for the destruction of the person who is hated. And Christians must never, uh, never uh, hate people uh, in that way. That is about their destruction that is equivalent uh, to murder. So anyone who is angry with his brother, this is anger that looks to their destruction, shall be liable to the courts. The word used here is for a local court. Um, whoever says raka to his brother, this is uh, an Aramaic insult. Whoever says Raka to his brother shall be liable to the Sanhedrin, somewhat higher court, if you, if you want a more serious crime. And whoever says, you moron. We ever said you moron to anybody? Well, that, that makes you liable to hell. It's very strict. This is a hatred to the extent that we want to destroy our brother or our sister's uh, reputation, their livelihood, uh, and even their very life on earth. If you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. You see. Uh, there is a debate uh, amongst commentators about whether uh, what the brother has against you is justified or not. You see. 
I mean, if if you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you that is a justified complaint, then you must be reconciled before you worship. But there are other commentators who say, well, Jesus doesn't actually say whether the, what they have against you is justified. He just says, go and be reconciled. And I suppose we would have to say in as much as it lies in our power to do so. Um, I once invited uh, someone who had been a friend of mine, who is now a leading campaigner on gay rights. I invited her to lunch. Uh, and she said to me, I never thought that you would invite me to lunch. And I said, why? Uh, you know, you're still my friend. I totally disagree with what you're doing. So, um, it is, the onus is on us. I think that's the point. The onus is on us not to cut off contact and to make sure that we do everything we can to reconcile our brother or our sister who's alienated from us to ourselves. By the way, Jesus here switches abruptly from the plural you, you all, you know, English you can't indicate this difference. But in other languages, of course, you can. He switches from the plural you to the singular. This is about us as believers, individual believers. The, uh, the shift is quite remarkable. Make friends quickly with your accuser whilst you're going with him to court because he may have a better case than you do. I don't know what that will do to the Christian legal center. Um, but I know actually, I'm sure Andrea would say this, that uh, so many of the things that are brought to their attention are actually resolved outside the courts, aren't they? And I think that is right. That is in accordance with this teaching, so that going to court is only a last resort when everything else uh, has failed. Um, then, uh, the next pair of opposites um, is about adultery. Um, again, the commandment is clear in the, um, in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. But as we were hearing yesterday, this is not just about the act of adultery. And once again, Jesus is pointing out that adultery is much more than simply the act as the Pharisees and the scribes would have it. So everyone who looks at a woman lustfully, not just looks at a woman, I mean, where would we be? We'd be in Saudi Arabia or somewhere if it was <laughs> just to look at a woman. It's not, it's not about that. The, the feminine form, who was it who said the feminine form is one of the great beauties of creation. But looks at a woman lustfully to desire, to possess, to violate, to use, to demean. That is what it means. To internalize, as we were hearing yesterday, to make it habitual, for it to become a vice uh, and a captivity in which people find, find themselves. 
That is what he is talking about, an obsessive, um, an obsessive attitude to a particular woman, or it may be to women in general, and of course we also know it may be for men towards men and women towards women these days. So the, the key here is the lustful look, the lustful attitude, uh, the lustful approach. So if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Uh, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. This is to say, to avoid the occasion for sin. You see, the occasion for sin is not sin in itself. I mean, to take an example from today, going to a nightclub is not in itself sinful. But it is very often an occasion for sin, an opportunity for sin. Um, I read about these people who are accusing someone of rape and it turns out that they went to their room at 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, what did they go there for? Did they expect breakfast or <laughs> what did they expect? So avoid the occasion for sin. That is what Jesus is, is saying here. And then we come to the specific example, which is about divorce. It was said, by the way, when uh, uh, this is repeated again and again, you have heard that it was said to the people of old. Um, and uh, many have thought that this is a reference to what the Old Testament actually says, but this is not the case. Uh, what Jesus is saying, literally, is you have heard that it was said by people, or by people of old, by men of old, that is to say this is about the interpretation of the fathers of the scriptures, not the scriptures themselves. This is, this is very important. It doesn't come out in many translations. I don't know what the one behind me says. What does it say? It was also said. 21? 31. Well, what does 21 say? 31. Yeah, no, 21. What does 21 say? You have heard. Yeah. Go on. Say, read the whole thing. Yeah, not to those of old, but by those of old. So this is about the rabbinic interpretation of the scriptures, not the scriptures themselves. This is a very important point, because it's often misunderstood. Anyway, coming to divorce, let, if anyone wants to divorce his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is still done uh, in the Jewish community, by the way. And if a man doesn't want his wife to be freed, uh, he withholds this certificate from her. It's, it's a big issue in Israel and even amongst the Jewish community in this country. Uh, it is true that there is permission to divorce in the Older Testament, but not a command. In fact, in the prophets, what does it say in Malachi? I hate divorce, says the Lord. I hate it. 
is not something uh, that is according to God's purposes. And Jesus, of course, in his teaching here and also in Matthew 19, underlies uh, how divorce is faithful to God. Um, so anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of pornea, that's the word that is used. We've been talking about pornography a great deal and no doubt will continue to do so. But that is what the word except it be for pornea causes her to be exposed to adultery or makes her a victim of adultery. So the best reading is a passive sense. It doesn't just make her an adulteress, as my translation says but exposes her, makes her a victim of adultery. Probably because he has divorced her, so he can marry somebody else. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits <coughs> adultery, that is, uh, in case the divorce is taking place because of pornea, because of unchastity. So, so often, uh, people marry those with whom they have committed adultery. Um, I had a, a vicar in my diocese and he ran away with his curate Christmas Eve of the opposite sex, um, the curate was, uh, let me say. It left us with managing the Christmas services. He then came to me and he said, because I'd instituted proceedings against him, and he said, what's your problem, Bishop? I'm going to marry this woman. So I said, my problem is the other woman you've left in the vicarage. <laughs> what am I going to do with her? <laughs> so Mark chapter 10, of course, brings out very clearly that this is, there's a mutuality. This is about men and women. It is possible for both men and women to do this. Matthew is speaking in a Jewish context where only the man could issue a certificate of divorce. That is still the case uh, with Orthodox Jews. Uh, Mark has much more a Roman context in which either side could divorce. But the same teaching applies, whether it is to a man uh, or to a woman, of course. <laughs> then we come to swearing. You shall not swear falsely. It said in the old days, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have. So keep the oath. Keep the vow that you've taken. Keep the oath of, uh, that you have sworn. But I say to you, do not swear at all. <coughs> Either by heaven. Heaven in the Bible is a circumlocution for God. It's a way of speaking about God without taking the divine name. Or by the earth, for it is God's footstool, his creation. Or by Jerusalem, it is the city of the great king, that is God himself, or indeed the Messiah. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You have no control in the end of your own uh, destiny. God is in control. So let what you say simply be yes, or yes, yes, or no, no, in Semitic languages that is often repeated. Uh, those uh, who know them will understand what that means for emphasis. 
Um, so uh, the problem with oaths, now I know there are lots of lawyers here who are used to oath-taking. Problem with oaths is that they set up a double standard. So that means if you've taken an oath, you are telling the truth. If you haven't, you're free to lie. I mean, that's, that's the implication if you really look at it. However, there are some situations where it is right uh, for oaths to be used. Jesus himself is aware of this. You remember that great scene before the high priest. Jesus is standing bound before him. And what does the high priest say? Mark 14. I adjure you by the living God. Are you the Messiah? The son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm not going to take an oath. He says, I am. The one place in Mark where ego aimi is used, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in glory. So this is about a promiscuous use of swearing and oath-taking, which is so common in so many cultures. Then we come to this question about how to deal with attacks on ourselves. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the law of retaliation. I was talking to some Muslim politicians and um, they said to me, well one of them said, um, of course, uh, the bedrock of the Islamic view of punishment, kasas, is, um, is retaliation. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life, limb for limb. Um, and another Muslim sitting next to him uh, held his arm and he said, but brother, it is not like that for Christians. He said it, not me. <laughs> So they then said, well, what is it like for, you know, what is a Christian theory of punishment? Now, I was so thankful that I so often am to C.S. Lewis for his wonderful essay on punishment, where he says, well, of course, there must be an element of retribution in punishment for the wrong that is done. But for the Christian, there must also be uh, an element of reformation and the opportunity for rehabilitation. That means all punishments that injure the mind or the body are ruled out. Do not resist one who is evil. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Well, so much debate about this, isn't there? I mean, um, isn't there? I was um, in a Nigerian village, uh, very soon after it had been attacked near, near Jos uh, with Archbishop Benjamin Kwashi. Uh, and the attack uh, had, they'd attacked the old people, they'd attacked, they'd killed the children, and they'd even killed pregnant women and their unborn children. And the villagers were saying, and you hear this now a lot in Nigeria, they were saying, we have run out of cheeks to turn. We've been stuck on one, we've turned... I mean, how many cheeks 
can be turned. They were saying. And so I've had to think about this because of my work with persecuted Christians. How many cheeks are there to turn? There seems to be no end uh, to the assault on Christians simply for being Christians. The conclusion to which I have come, and this is a difficult matter, you may disagree with me, is that there is no teaching for self-defense in Jesus. There's no possibility. I mean, it's an instinctive reaction that we defend ourselves, but the teaching of Jesus gives us no reason for it, for self-defense. But it says nothing about defending the poor, the weak, the old, the pregnant. And that is what I said to my Nigerian friends. That if the police and the army are unable to protect the weak, the poor, the old, then you have to find ways of doing it yourself. Peaceful ways if that is possible, or other ways if that is not possible. Then there is um, teaching about enemies. It was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. At the time of the great migration crisis a couple of years ago, um, I was asked to come and do hard talk for the second time. There is a strict policy with hard talk that you only do it once. Uh, but they asked, they said, we'll make an exception, we'll do you again, do you over again, I think is more, <laughs> given the nature of the problem. And it was Zainab Badawi, who was a Muslim uh, BBC interviewer, she was, she was doing it, not, not Stephen Sacker, this time. And she opened the interview by saying, Bishop, your Bible says, your Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. So I said, our Bible doesn't just say to love your neighbor as yourself, it also says to love the stranger as yourself. And Jesus is here expanding that to mean also to love your enemy. I find this very difficult. Um, the natural man rebels against this idea that those who have done you serious wrong should be loved and prayed for and provided for. Uh, what does it say in Romans chapter 12? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him to drink. But the reason for this is God's overruling and overarching providence. God does not withhold good things even from those who are against Him. And His law, His purpose, His grace, His revelation in Christ. He provides for them. And so should we. And so this um, part of the sermon ends with Jesus saying, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the miracle that the righteousness that is Christ's 
by which we become acceptable to God, by his grace, becomes ours. I mean, this is the miracle of sanctification. His becomes ours. What is imperfect becomes perfect, as it says in Ephesians, so that you grow into the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, there was a great debate between uh, the Wesleys and uh, Whitfield and Charles Simeon about whether this perfection can happen in this life or not. Temperamentally, I'm inclined to take the side of Whitfield and Simeon on this, that this is perfection uh, by God's purposes and God's grace at the resurrection. But um, there is uh, this requirement that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You see, salvation is, as we heard yesterday, salvation is a past reality. You have been saved by grace, through faith, you have been saved. And we should have no doubt about that assurance of our salvation. But it is also a present reality where we are struggling for that grace to work out in our lives so that we are indeed growing towards the uh, stature of the fullness of Christ. And then of course there is that future aspect of salvation when the work that God has begun in us he will bring to completion. And all these three have to be held if we are to have a proper understanding of faith and hope and love. May it be so. Amen. Amen.